0: During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives, and David would not drink it? Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. This is God's word. If you've been with us uh, the past several weeks, uh, past several months, uh, we began a series uh, called what does it mean to be a Christian because being a Christian um, there, there's, uh, there's a language associated with being a Christian there is uh, more than a manner more than a behavior uh, understanding the Christian faith is more about identity and that means with an identity comes a language uh, with citizenship comes a language words like repentance and sin words like faith and renewal and today we're going to talk a little bit about Christian community. What does it mean to be a part of a Christian community? What, it mean, what does it mean to value a Christian community? And we're going to go into the story of David. Now, uh, first and second Samuel, they' the longest narrative in ancient history of a single human life, the biography of a single human life. It's the longest narrative, and you have to understand what I'm saying here. It's more than just a biblical narrative. The story and the narrative of David is the longest narrative of a single human life in all of ancient literature so i'm going to give you a little bit of a background of what's going on here in this text and we're going to go into this text and we're going to draw from it some some lessons here um when king saul realized that david was going to be anointed to become the next king um rage corroded him jealousy overtook him and he began to openly try to kill David and he would, because he was trying to prevent him from becoming the next king. And David, as a result, had to flee into the wilderness. He was fleeing the caves. And there in the caves, there in his fleeing, uh, in, the, in the midst of the civil war, there were about 400 men who had pledged allegiance to David. They had gathered around David. They became very, very close to David. They became good friends of David. They became a band of soldiers fighting for David. And, and Saul eventually died in the civil war. He perished in the war. These men became David's guardians. They served in his palace. They were his friends. They were the ones who rescued David, saved David. They were his most loyal group of followers. And they, as a result, became part of David's military elite. They were their leaders. They were like family to David. They, they knew David very, very well. David knew them very well. A tremendous amount of trust Uh, They were also incredibly skilled, strategic soldiers and fighters. They were called David's mighty men. And chapter 23 pretty much chronicles some of their exploits. The author is peculiar here because he takes an episode that really took place earlier on in David's career as a king, earlier on before he became king in the midst of that civil war, and he brings that to the end of David's life. Now, if you know anything about David's life, the first part we see in 1 Samuel, it's his arise, it's his uh, awakening as a king, his emergence to the throne. The second half, what you see really is his kingship, his leadership. And there you see some horrible things. David is is a sinner and you see David's exploits as well uh, and his sinfulness and David's renewal and David's repentance and his suffering. So you really see all the dimensions of a person's life what makes or breaks a person's life. This passage, as the author is, again, is taking a, a portion of David's life that took place earlier on and uses it to pretty much sum up David's life, his relationship with God. And this passage doesn't take place during the, during the Civil War. It takes place shortly after David becomes king. David uh, becomes king, and the text reads that a Philistine army had taken over the headquarters, which is, uh, well, taken over the headquarters of Israel. Really, it was Bethlehem, David's hometown. They had encamped themselves in the valley of Rephaim, and uh, they had taken over David's hometown. So David again is on the run. David has fled again. He's far from home, far from the center of Israel of Israel's faith, which is Jerusalem, far from the capital uh, of Israel. And he is on the run again. He's in caves again. And, And he is the king. And what were the Philistines doing? Why did they choose this time? They were doing this because David was a new king. This is when Israel was vulnerable. This is when Israel was weak. And so the Philistine army had come in to test the leadership of David, to test the kingship of David, his valor as king, his reign as king, because if they could be successful, Israel could be weakened, could, David could possibly be overthrown. So it was, a very, it was an especially dark time for David. It was a vulnerable time for David. It's when he was least experienced as king. And we're going to read here verse 13 to 14. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam While a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. You see, the Philistines, they were encamped at the valley of Rephaim, just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem. And they had taken over his home, and uh, it's, it's an incredibly weak period in David's life. And it was during this harvest, during the time of the harvest. And, and if the Philistines lasted even longer there, they would take over the harvest. They would plunder Israel of their harvest. The harvest could be destroyed, and that would be disastrous for the Israelites because in a time, in an agrarian culture, where the harvest was where you pretty much, the harvest determined the wealth of a country. To lose your wealth, there would be, there would be a food shortage and that would mean economic disaster for the country in the time of war. And so you have economic failure. You have military disaster. You have pretty much encroachment by the Philistines into their country. They would be stripped of their land, stripped of their resources. They, it would be, the country would just fall apart. And so David knew this, and now here he is. He's hiding in the caves, and, and he, he knows this is probably the most vulnerable time in his kingdom to date. And he says in verse 15, Oh, that someone would go and bring me a drink, bring me water from a well near the gates of Bethlehem. Oh, that someone would bring me this drink. Now, David wasn't saying this because he was thirsty. thirsty. There's no way that he would establish a headquarters in his cave in Adullam. Right? There's no way they would set this up. Whereas chief military experts, whereas chief soldiers, whereas generals and lieutenants, where they would all be gathered, there's no way that he would choose a place where there was no water. There had to have been a spring there. So he wasn't longing for water per se. He was longing for home. He said, oh, that someone would bring me water from Bethlehem. He wasn't longing for physical water. He was longing, the water in Bethlehem was sweet. It represented the favor of God, the grace of God. David was longing for the promise. God had chosen David to be king. He was supposed to be king, and yet he's in a cave. He was supposed to be in a, on a throne, and yet he's huddled in a cave. He was supposed to uh, receive the promise of God, the favor of God, as God's deliverer, and yet he's on the run. He was supposed to rule with justice, and yet he's running from injustice, you see? And so he's longing for the promise. God was supposed to be present, but here he's weak, he's vulnerable. And really, what he is asking here is Am I ever gonna get home? Am I ever gonna get there? Will I ever become king? I mean, really, I've been on the ever since I've been anointed as king. I've been on the run. I've been fleeing. The authorities have been against me. I've been hiding away in caves. Will I ever defeat the Philistines? Is God really with me? That's the real question. I've received this incredible promise. I've received the favor of God, and yet I'm suffering. I'm in a cave. Is God really here? Does he really see me? And how will I know it? Because when I look around, and I look around, all I see are caves. All I see is longing. All I see are these great military men who've, who have stood by my side, and yet we're all suffering together. And so he says it with a sigh. He says, oh, that someone would bring me water from a well near the gates of Bethlehem. He's longing for, like he said, I'm longing for a time of peace. Will I ever have a time in my life where there will be restoration? Will there ever be a time in my life where I can actually rest? Will there ever be a time when I can actually realize my fullest potential, experience my calling, experience the options that God has promised in front of me? He said he will give it to me. Will I ever experience that and know that and feel that? What happened was three men overheard. Three men overheard. So of the 30 chief men, three men, the mighty men, these mighty men, chapter 23 details their honor and their valor and their courage. They hear the king's longing. And so what do they do? They hear his sigh. They see his suffering. And again, David knew his men. His men knew David. David trusted his men. His men trusted David. They loved David. They honored David. They knew David. And so in verse 16, what happens? These three mighty men, they break through the Philistine lines. They baked through the lines. And they drew water from the well uh, near the gate of Bethlehem and they carried it back to David. Now, if you think about what happened in verse 16, it says this. I'm just going to read verse 16. So the three mighty men broke through the lines. They drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. They carried it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. You have to understand what's going on here. The Philistine garrison, it was like a, a garrison is like an early warning system. And so you had about 20 men banded and huddled. Uh, near the gate of Bethlehem, and if you broke through those lines, there would be an escape hatch. Basically, these men would run away, the ones who were alive, and they would bring back the rest of the army. And the army, they would know now there's a battle. So the army would come, the entire camp would surround uh, the gates, and you would have to fight uh, with reinforcements, right? These three guys, they cut their way through the garrison, Now, if you see anything about uh, chapter 23, you would know that these men are not normal, typical men. God was with these men, and they had done tremendous things in battle. So these three men, they break through the garrison, 20 men. The garrison is uh, up on a hill. You would never establish a garrison down low. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. Uh, And so what they would do is they would basically, these men would have to fight uphill, which is already fighting at a disadvantage. They're fighting uphill, break through the lines, uh, for, to draw water from the well, one of the men would have to draw water. The other two men are left fighting right so it 's an amazing story if you think about it. These two men are fighting now the Philistine garrison they would go alert the camp. The men from the camp would come, and so now you have an entire army of Philistines fighting two men one man 's drawing the water into the canteen, gets up the three men have to fight right through, charge down the hill run back, they bring the water to David. What David does, he looks at the water, he receives the water, he opens up the canteen, and he pours the water out. And you notice, it's an amazing story, um, because these men, who are staring at their own death in the face of battle, it's not like they were fighting for the throne, in particular. They were just bringing water back for their king. And when David pours that water out, we're talking about the Middle East, very, very hot in the Middle East. As David's pouring this water out, the water just pretty much vaporizes and is gone. And you don't see a word of indignation. Not a single man says, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Not a single person says that. In fact, they would have been honored by it because they knew at that moment they were all worshiping together. That's what's going on here. Let me explain Uh, these men who trusted David knew David they wanted to show David what they knew and that was that God was with them because they knew that if these three men could break through a garrison and then break through a camp David's entire army of mighty men could defeat the Philistines it would bring him hope this was probably the turning point in that war in that invasion these men were not trying to show how strong they were. They were not trying to show how courageous they were. There were many other chronicles and, and, and uh, uh, historical accounts of these mighty men and what they had done. These men were strategic thinkers. They were calculated thinkers. It's not like they didn't know what they were up against. They knew exactly what they would be fighting up against. And yet they went ahead because they trusted their king. They knew their king and they wanted to encourage their king. That victory comes through suffering. And David realized this, and he was encouraged by it, and he was honored by it. There are four very, very quick le- lessons we're gonna run through, and we're gonna respond to our king in the same manner. First, the first thing we see here is every victory, every victory, every triumph, every blessing is a gift. Every talent, every gift every hint of intelligence that you have, every hint of beauty that you possess, every child that you bring up and raise, every addition to your resume or pedigree, it's a gift. Every victory is a gift. When David pours out the water before the Lord, he, sa- he says this. Well, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. It's only by God's grace that these men break through." broke through God saw my weakness, God saw my discouragement, God saw my vulnerability. God knows how weak we are, God knows how vulnerable we are, God knows how easily we can be discouraged, and so God was with them in every one of these accounts that you see in chapter 23. God was with each and every one of those mighty men. It never says this man was so strong and so smart, that he was able to do this and talk trash while he was at it. It's that God was with them on that day and the Lord delivered the Philistines over. That's what it says every single time. God saw, God heard, and it shaped them and it convicted them. God saw my weakness and it shaped these men and it convicted these men. It made these men see what God saw and they knew what, it needed, what needed to be done. You never trust your own strength. You never trust your own prowess. You know, your, your strengths and your skills, you never trust these things. You, never, you don't ever say it when you're done with something, yes, I did this, we did this. You pour it out before the Lord because it's a gift. That's, really, that's one of the first things this text is telling us. What's one way that we act as if we've earned it? We start to complain when something doesn't go our way the moment you start to complain when something goes your way, what you're saying is this. God has certain plans for me. I have other plans for myself. Clearly, God's plan and my plan are not aligned. And so what do we do? We complain. You know what? Another way that we, we, are not, uh, we act as if we've earned something is when you get anxious. Right? Because when you're anxious, what you're saying is, I have certain plans for myself. God may have other plans for me. My plans are not aligned with God's plans, or God's plans are not aligned with my plans, and as a result, I'm afraid that his plans are not aligned with my plans, and so we get anxious. Complaining and anxiety are really ways of arguing with God. From the smallest little irritations to the deepest insecurities and uncertainties of of tomorrow, right? One of the ways that we act as if we are in control, as if we've earned it, is through our complaints, through our arguing. That's all internal. We do that internally, right? How do you respond to God's grace? How do you know that you're thankful? How do you know that you're living out of gratitude? Think about it. You pour out. You pour out time, resources, radical generosity, the church throughout history marked by radical generosity. We're generous with our time. We're generous with forgiveness. We're generous with relationship. We're generous. We're generous radically. We pour out. Today, we kill ourselves to get into the best schools, to get the best jobs, to have the best wedding. We do that, to build the best careers, Why? Because we want to say, I have something that I can call my own, something that I can say will define me. I've earned it. Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author, he wrote a book called Outliers. The theme of the entire book, without really going into the book, what's the theme of the whole book? Most of the things that bring success in our lives are the result of things that we've never earned. Things such as your looks, things such as your intelligence, you never you didn't earn these things things such as being born in the right place at the right era you didn't earn these things most of our talents have been inherently given to us in its raw state they've been given to us we receive them they're gifts live out of gratitude every victory is a blessing every victory is a gift the second thing this passage teaches us is very simple, as pedantic as you can get, you obey your king. Obey your king. These men, they were so totally devoted to their king. They loved their king so much that there was no difference for them between a command from the king and a sigh. There was no difference. There was no difference between an order and a directive from the king and just a hope or a wish were a sigh David sighed to them it was a command and they went you know what that means there's a very very big difference between religion and Christianity now some of us were surprised by that statement because we thought they were one and the same thing I myself growing up thought they were the same thing I thought that being religious in the church was pretty much the same thing as being a good Christian because the best of those the most religious people in the church are usually the ones who are the most awarded who are the one they are the ones who are the most honored and the most respected right but you know if you think about the heart of religiosity what does a religious person say a religious person asks what does god require of me what does he want of me because i need i need certain things in my life and in order to get those things i need god to have favor on me i need his approval Maybe that's what you want. You want acceptance. You want approval. You want that deep cosmic acceptance, which is why we're constantly working to gain wealth or to gain power because to have that is to have a sense of approval. And that's a deeply spiritual thing. Scholars and commentators, any type of social commentator you read, will agree and acknowledge that most of our pursuits in life, although they seem worldly, there's always a subterranean desire or insecurity that's driving it. Most social commentators today will acknowledge that. How do you tell when somebody's religious? It's because when they're asked to do something, this is the difference, this is one of the key difference is when a religious person is asked to do something that doesn't fit alongside improving their agenda or fulfilling their agenda or getting their desires, they start to complain. That's when the complaints come out. That's when the anxieties come out. That's how you know, right? That's when the frustrations come out. Everything is great until my needs aren't met. Once my needs aren't met, you start to question the king. You start to question the goodness of the king, the justice of the king, the righteousness of the king. That's what happens. A Christian searches God's heart. A religious person says, what does God need in order for me to feel accepted, in order to be accepted? What do I need to do? A Christian says, what does God desire? A Christian searches for God's sigh. A Christian is always eavesdropping on God's sighs. He's listening in. He's reading his word. He knows God. He trusts God. He loves God. And so he's Constantly eavesdropping on the size of God. He's looking at his heart. A Christian looks at his commands, God's commands, and sees God's character and sees and hears his size. That's what a Christian does. He's moved by the Lord. A Christian does what God wants, not so that God would be satisfied and pleased with him if he does it, but the very nature of doing it brings him joy. The very nature of doing these things for the Lord brings him joy because to see God honored, to see God pleased, to see that is his joy. A religious person comes to God and says, what can I do to get other things? Because, and the reason, the way you know that I said, the way you know that is because when you see the frustration of a person, when you hear a person's complaints, therein lies what they really, really want. Therein lies what they really desire apart from God. But a Christian says, what do I do for God to get more of God? To see God pleased, to see Him honored, to see Him glorified. What would bring God joy? Because that is my joy. I don't gain anything from it. In fact, sometimes I suffer for it. What would I what can I do? God's delight is my reward. God's delight is not a means to an end. God's delight is my end. A Christian does what God wants. For his own joy, for the joy of his own heart, for the pleasure of his own heart. There's no now. Look at these men. There was no discussion. There was no meeting. They didn't sit there and huddle and say, "Okay." Uh, I mean, if you read the text, it almost seems like it's on impulse. And uh, what what that shows us is that their love for their king. These three men, their love for the king, it was so dynamic. There was no, they didn't sit there and calculate, okay, wait a second, I had plans tomorrow, so we have to sit here and figure out how am I going to fit this into my schedule, and uh, wait, uh, how much, you know, I just got done working out, I'm a little tired, you know, I, I, we just got out of battle, and I uh, got to figure out, have I recovered? It looks like they were almost on impulse. There was no calculation. Now, these are very, very strategic men. These are generals. Of the 30 mighty, of the 30 chief men, this, these three were the mightiest of the 30, of a band of 400 men, consisting of or running or ruling the entire army of David. You see that? These are the three mighty. They, they had to be strategic. They had to have risen to, to, to be where they are. And yet, you see them running almost on impulse. They had to do it. They were compelled to do this out of their love for their king. Uh, their love for their king was dynamic. It wasn't so that they could get something out of it. Nowhere in this text do you see anything applied that they were going to receive something in return. And it, it, does, it makes total sense because at the time, what did David have? David didn't have anything. David had virtually nothing. We weren't even sure if we're going to win the war. David wasn't even really certain. That's why they were in the caves. That's why David was sighing. They did it out of their love for their king. He sighs, they win. The relationship between a religious person and God is very, very mechanic. Very mechanic relationship. As a result, your prayer is a mechanic. Going to church is mechanic. mechanical, Right? Um, uh, how you conduct yourself in the church, how, how you navigate the church, there 's this mechanic relationship, mechanical relationship between you and, and the church, you and God. And you notice, God calls himself over and over our husband. over and over he calls himself our father that 's very, very poignant for us in this passage to understand. When you go on a date. Right? Some of you are married. You think back to when you used to go on dates. Right? Some of you are actively going on dates. When you go on a date, when you go on your first date, it's very mechanical. There's something very inorganic about it, right? Because when you go, you're still, uh, you don't, you're trying to figure out how to conduct yourself. If you think back to earlier dates, you know, you're very surprised when there's something organic about the conversation or there's something organic. That's a very good date right you're, but as you get closer to someone as you get to know somebody and when you seal that relationship in marriage once you get married anything goes right there's no sense of even propriety because you become one and in that union all of a sudden now the relationship becomes very very organic right Jesus consistently and over and over says I'm the vine and you are the branches in other words what he's saying is I want an organic relationship with you my relationship with you is not mechanical. A, a God who came down, sacrificed his life with blood, not just tears and sweat, but with blood. That is not a mechanical God. He says, I want an organic relationship with you. And so that's why he calls himself our father. That's why it was the son who came down. That's why he says, you, let me be with them. Let them be with me, Right? Uh, he wants an organic relationship with us, a dynamic relationship with us, an intimate relationship with us. When David saw that these mighty men had broken through, there he had the assurance that God was with him because they risked their lives, because they, they poured their lives out. Now, think about this. If you read the Bible just to get certain answers, you got questions, you're looking in the Bible for answers, if you want it just to get a sense of morality, that's never going to change your life. That's never going to shape your life. You ever make New Year's resolutions? How long does it go? Right? You make certain commitments because you see something, you read something, you hear something. It's never going to shape your life. Never going to change your life. In fact, sometimes the Bible, if you look at the Bible that way, it's going to be oppressive to you. It's going to, be, it's going to almost seem like it's trying to subvert you. Sometimes the Bible is going to confuse you. Sometimes the Bible is going to anger you. Sometimes the Bible is going uh, to thwart you in your plans and what you want. It's going to challenge you a lot of times. You need to understand that the Bible is primarily and always and completely about Jesus, the greater King. The Bible tells us that there is a king, that there was a king who overheard your sighs. Somebody overheard your heart longing for a place. Somebody overheard your heart longing for rest. Somebody overheard your heart longing for peace. All of your life is crazy. It is a war zone in your life, a battle zone. From the moment that you get up to the moment you go to sleep, you you look like you're just in heat and in battle, and you're thirsting, and you're working, and you're toiling, and you're laboring, or you're hiding, or you're retreating. Either way, there's constant labor, you're never at, you're, there's never comfort, that soulful comfort that we need. Someone has overheard your sigh. You're longing for a home, just like David. David sighed for a home. He sighed for a rest. He sighed for peace. He was thirsting. That's why he's longing for water. And this passage points out that somebody overheard your sigh and longing for peace and a home and for rest and for comfort. And somebody broke through the lines at the cost of his life. That's what this passage teaches us. Jesus broke through the lines, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. These men, they broke through the lines at the risk of their lives, and God was with them. Jesus broke through the lines at the cost of his life, and God had abandoned him, you see. On the cross, it was Jesus' blood that was poured out as a sacrifice. When these men saw David... Pouring the cup out. The reason why it was a worship is because what David was doing at the moment was he was pouring it out as a drink offering. A drink offering in the Old Testament always pointed to the sacrifice of the king who is to come. The sacrifice of the king. That's why even in the Middle East, you're thirsty, that's why the drink would be poured out. Because it it, it represented sacrifice. A life that would be poured out. No water, no life. And so on the cross, here's Jesus, and his blood is literally pouring out. And that's why just before he was arrested, just before he died, he meets with his closest friends, his mightiest friends. He gathers them together in a room, and he serves them a meal. And one of the things he says is, "This let this cup represent my blood that will be poured out for you, the cup, the drink offering, you see. It it was a drink offering. And he says it represented the king was to come. And mainly what he's saying is he doesn't say this represents the king's blood who will come. He says this represents my blood which will be poured out. What he's saying is I am the high king that the Old Testament was talking about. I am that high king who came to sacrifice his blood will be poured out for you. The spear strikes him later on. You see this in John chapter 19. The spear strikes him. And what happens? It's blood and water that's poured out. Jesus' life is being poured out just like water, and it's pouring out onto the ground. What's happening? On the cross, Jesus is making the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate drink offering, the ultimate sacrifice. On the cross, he says, he looks to God and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, David's men, they honored him. They honored him with this drink. But my people, they've abandoned me. David's God, he was with them. He encouraged them. He strengthened them. But me, I'm on the cross. My God has forsaken me. And here, these men are mocking me, and they're hurling insults at me. And I thirst. I'm thirsty. I am longing for home, I am longing for rest. I am longing for rest and peace and restoration, and it can only be found in God. And yet, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm being poured out like a drink offering, and I'm being dishonored, not honored. I'm I'm experiencing the ultimate cosmic discomfort of the soul, being separated from God. Why? So that you can have peace, so that you can have the security of God, so that you can experience true rest, the soulful rest that all of us need That's the end of our work. It's the end of our work. Why do we obey the king? We obey the king because he has rescued us and delivered us in a way he has given us his peace. He has given us his comfort. He has given us his sonship. Jesus Christ lost the sonship. He was forsaken so that we could have his sonship. Jesus Christ's life was poured out like a drink offering. You know later on, the apostle Paul, he mentions twice in the New Testament, he says even if I am being poured out like a drink offering. What he's saying is, my life going forward represents the sacrifice of Christ. Why do we obey the king? because we are living our lives. If you've plunged your life into the grace of God, if you've, plunged your, if you've ever plunged your soul or your life into the promise of God, into the blessing of God, into the life that is Jesus Christ, into his death, you're going to live your life on the pattern of his death. What that means is you're going to pour yourself out. The Apostle Paul says, I'm pouring myself out like a drink offering. Even if my life is being poured out like a drink offering, he says. That's what he says. David... He is blown away by the sacrifice. Completely blown away. David gained hope. David gained strength. David gained honor. We should be all the more encouraged. We should be all the more strengthened. The life of Christ being poured out gives us far greater assurance than anything that David received that day. David received hope and strength and encouragement because of the sacrifice of these three men. They risked their lives at his cost and overwhelmed by that, the men are standing with him and they're pour- he's pouring out the drink. It was a drink offering before the Lord. They were all worshiping. They were all gathered and worshiped because they were all reminded there and then God is with us. We should be all the more reminded that God, every time we look at the cross, we see the ultimate drink offering, the blood being poured out for us. That should encourage us. Any time that you are suffering, you should look to the cross, you should see the blood of Christ being poured out. That should encourage us and strengthen us. God is still present with you. God is still there with you. Every single time you look at the cross, there's uncertainty in your life, grumbling in your life, frustration in your life, complaining because these are the things that should automatically reorient you away from pursuing those desires for comfort and security and peace apart from God. And you should be looking to the cross. It should point you to the high king who blesses us with true security, ultimate security, ultimate peace, ultimate comfort, ultimate freedom, ultimate joy, the joy that we're looking for. That's why we're working so hard. This is the end of work. That's why we obey our king. This is the end of work. This is not the start of more work. This is the end of work, the end of the work of the soul, having to prove ourselves, you see, because Jesus Christ, our righteousness, his blood poured out and covers us. That's his righteousness covering us. That's his sonship covering us. That is the assurance that we need. Far greater than anything David received that day. How much more are we reminded? Only if you see Jesus Christ pouring out his blood for you. If you see the sweetness in that, if you see the heroism in that, if you see the love and the compassion behind Jesus' sacrifice for you, that is God hearing your sigh. God hears. God sees. God knows you're not suffering alone. If anything, you're suffering, especially if you're suffering because of the gospel. But if you're suffering because if you're persecuted because of the gospel, if you're suffering, friends have abandoned you, family has abandoned you because of your commitment to Christ. Your work may even be abandoning you to some degree, maybe impacting you to some degree because of your commitments. What you're saying is, I will live with integrity. I I will honor my God in my work because again, everything is a victory. Every blessing is a gift. You see how this all ties together? If you see that, and, oh, now you see, every time you look at the cross, God is present. He hears you. He sees you. In fact, your suffering is connected with Christ's suffering. Do you see that? You will never understand the suffering of Christ more than when you suffer, you see, in this context. If you see the sweetness of Christ and the heroism of Christ, the courage of Christ, the compassion of Christ, if you're melted by the love of Christ, that's God hearing your sigh. Then you will be able to act to hear other people's sighs. That's how it works. You will be moved by the sighs of other people. You will be moved by the sighs heard in this city. You'll be moved by the size heard in your workplace. You'll be moved by the size of your children and your wife and your husband. You'll be moved by the elderly. You'll be moved by the growing population of elderly in this city and in this country. You'll be moved by that. Your hearts, you're going to be awoken to that. Those sides will cause you to act, you see. To the degree that you trust in the gospel, you will live not for yourself. You will pour yourself out for other people last two points, very quick. The third thing it's going to do, it's going to lead us to genuine community. This is the power of friendships. This is the power of community. You know what community does? Real community. Real community is not two people who meet in a church, get close, and then use each other to just kind of console each other and pursue their desires together. That's conventional Christianity in America today. We get together, we feel heard, Right? Get the warm fuzzies together and we console one another and then we just kind of go about our own way, supporting each other as we pursue each other's desires. Real community encourages us in Christ. Real community uplifts. Real community says, I hear this person sigh, what can I do to encourage this person to remember that they are here because of Christ and encourage them? Real community refreshes. That's what water does. Real community soothes and comforts. Real community begins with loving and understanding a person. These men, they knew David. They knew what David needed. When he said he wanted water, they went out and got it almost on impulse because they said, you know what gonna, You know what would really encourage him? If we could bring this water back. It's not the water he wants. He's questioning God's presence in his life. We can provide that because God is present, you see. We can encourage Him in that. Real, Real community brings each other into worship together. That's the call mark. You know you have encouraged. You know you have uplifted somebody. You know you have truly comforted somebody when they are brought back into worship. Friends, that happens even in admonishment. That happens even in challenging Whatever you do to encourage, truly strengthen somebody. Do you think the Holy Spirit came into your life to just kind of pat you on the back when you're feeling down because he's the encourager? That's not the word. The Latin word for encouragement is to enstrengthen. strengthen you see. It's to bring courage and strength where there was weakness and vulnerability. Do you see that? in a way that is Godward and righteous. It's not about, the Spirit does not say, man up. The Spirit is there because you can't. The Spirit says, look to Christ, and He is present. And I'm strengthening you because now you will work beyond your own ability. You've exhausted your strength. You've exhausted your ability. Your looks only got you so far. Live by the Spirit now. Where you can't go, now I will take you, you see? That's what the Spirit of God does. That's what we do. We, we can encourage people by understanding their longings, the deep spiritual cosmic longing, and by bringing Christ into their lives, strengthening them, encouraging them. That's the true sigh, the deep-rooted sigh, and showing them victory in Christ. That's what we can do. And you know that you've done that when you've brought somebody into worship, that they're able to see Jesus, see the cross, see their own failings, and be able to worship and be renewed. That's community. By the way, that's why we come to church. And it's not something that's optional. The the ancient church, nowhere in the Bible do you see anything that says that church was this optional thing. They longed for it. They gathered because they were enriched by it was more than just something that improved their lives, where they just picked up a few truths about how to build up and improve their lives. They gathered here because they needed to. God was present. And they would, using that on the basis of what is being taught, they would go then and live by that and encourage one another in that. That's the purpose of community groups. You see that? It all ties together. That way they can serve any call that way they can hear any call of god any challenge as a body if you see one person doing that yeah it's still pretty strong but when a whole body of people live that way there's power that's real community affecting neighborhoods and other communities you see that lastly this all took place where in the context of a cave in suffering david was in a cave when all this david wasn't on a throne in a palace, in the capital. David was in a cave, probably by some spring, in the darkness, in weakness, in vulnerability. And this pretty much was the hallmark of most of his kingship. For some of us, the caves are suffering. The caves equal suffering for some of us. For some of us, the caves equal anxiety. For some of us, the caves equal guilt. We're just... We're living under a cloud of guilt. That's like a cave. And it brings you into darkness. For some of us, there's just this cave of powerlessness. No matter how much I, I, I'm present at church, no matter how involved I am, there's just an overwhelming powerlessness that brings me back to my sins, and that begins the cascade of darkness and vulnerability in a way. It's, I just give up. I can't do this. But if you notice, these are the ways that God shaped David. David was shaped. Where did David learn to be a king? He was out in the field, tending the sheep where no one cared, or he was in a cave where he was suffering and tormented and no one cared, you see? That's where David was shaped to be a king. That's where David learned to rule. That's where David learned to become wise. That's where David learned righteousness. That's where David remained humble. That's how he lived a big life. The cave was the springboard on which David lived a big life. By the way, that's how God exalted his own son. God didn't exalt his own son by sending him down with a cloud of angels and subverting the whole world. God exalted his own son through his death. Right? Therefore, after his death, he became obedient to death, death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. That at the name of of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see? It happened through a cave. God didn't work despite the cave. He worked through the cave, through the death, through the humiliation, through the depression, through the anxiety, through the trouble. You see that? God worked through those things. And if he worked through Jesus Christ's own son, through his own death, he will work through you certainly in the same way because he wants you to grow, to become just like him. Do you trust it? To the degree you trust it, you will live by it. The hallmark of that is hearing other people's sighs. Do you trust it? When you have a community of people hearing one another's sighs and hearing the sighs of people outside of here, that is how the God's kingdom advances. Join that movement. Let's pray together.